0: Good morning, everybody. I am thankful after the basketball game last night to be able to walk uninhibited to the pulpit this morning. I would like to say a big thank you to Kenny G this morning for his work in the game last night. He did a great job refereeing. I did my best to do my best Kenny G impersonation at the end of the game. But it was a weak facsimile, so anyway, good to see you this morning. I'd like to make announcements uh, so that we're not making them this morning at offering time. Remember that tonight is our final service of the week, and so for those of you who have faithfully joined us via live stream or online, we're so thankful that you have joined us. We'll have services today, 10, 130, and then our closing service tonight, and we hope you can join us for all of that. And uh, we invite you again if you're able to participate with us um, by praying. There's a 24-hour prayer meeting going on today uh, that will go through 7 p.m. tonight. You can join that via Zoom link uh, or join us even in our offering by uh, participating through online giving. Dare for More Ministries is actually here and on campus this week, and so please stop by the game room and see Reba there and consider supporting the ministry through the handmade products that are available there. We will actually hold on giving offering updates and totals throughout the day, and we'll give all of that tonight. But again, want to encourage you, if you've been using Venmo for your fundraisers, please turn in those uh, totals today so that we have them and can get them included. And then a reminder that just due to the volume and the time, Um, Our fundraisers won't actually end with the closing service tonight. There still will be stuff going on. And so, uh, join us for a matinee magic show featuring the performance of BJU Seminary Professor Bruce Meyer in Stratton Hall on February 24th at 2 p.m. The hour-long show will feature fun, mystery, and illusion for both students and families, and proceeds will benefit the Bible Conference offering under the sponsorship of BJU Seminary, and the cost is $3 a person. With a family cap of $15, you will have to prove that you are family so that 30 of you students don't show up claiming to be family. (laughs) This is one you won't want to miss. The Basilian Eagles invite you to come ready to compete in a classic flag football tournament on Saturday, February the 24th. Grab some friends, sign up, and see who will be crowned best on-campus flag football team. You can sign up via the QR code on posters found around campus. the cost is $5 a player. If you are competitive, listen up. The Phi Kappa Pi Rams invite you to gather friends, make a team, and prepare to be the best spike ball team on campus at their spike ball tournament March the 9th from 6 to 9 p.m. Prizes will be awarded for the top three teams, and the cost is $4 per player. Ironside will be putting on its annual three-on-three basketball tournament, April the 5th. See, I love this. This is post-Bible Conference opportunity to wear off all of the calories you ate at the other fundraisers. That's, it's very well planned. April 5th, starting 9 p.m. in the DFH. It'll be a night of intense competition, open for all to enjoy. Cost is $7 a person to play, $5 a person to spectate. So get your team together and get ready to play. So a lot still to look forward to and plan on. As we open our service this morning, we're going to be led in prayer by Hayden Reese, a senior educational studies major from Rockwell, North Carolina. Hayden, come lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we come before you thankful for the many things that you've taught us during Bible conference so far this week. Um, What a privilege it is to be able to sit um, under the preaching of your words so often um, and father I ask that you would um, not let us take that for granted um, this morning we ask that you would help us to listen as we learn about faithfulness and I ask that through the things that we hear today um, you would burden our hearts for the lost and that you would raise up laborers from among this student body um, so that you will ultimately get the glory um, all around the world um, father we ask these things in Jesus name amen We are debtors to grace. Let's sing, come, uh, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Let's stand together.
1: thank you john and natalie and sophia for that beautiful number my heart has been very very encouraged this week by the preaching of god's word by the wonderful singing the special music the fellowship Uh, some of that fellowship was with pastors and their wives who've come back and other friends alumni and it's just been an overall great week i've enjoyed the fellowship with some students as well and uh, thank you for the part that every person has had in this very special week on the campus of Bob Jones University. And we're so thankful as well for your generous giving to this great cause that we're giving to this week. And uh, this is the big day. This is the final day. And in a sense, the final opportunity in terms of at least offering, I'm going to ask the ushers to come ahead, please, uh, in, uh, in actually giving to the Lord directly for this special ministry, dare for more, um, You know, the Bible standard for giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, especially chapter 9, is actually the standard of generosity. Uh, God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a generous or bountiful giver. And there's something about giving that is such a wonderful experience, and that is the reality of 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8 that God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. The very ability to give comes from the grace of God. The act of giving is, a, is an act of grace. And in the end, all of that generous giving goes back in giving glory to God for his generosity to us not only in salvation, but in the material things of life. And so as you give, give expectantly for what God is going to do through this ministry we're helping, uh, as well as what God is going to do for you in blessing you and in increasing your capacity to give more and more to the Lord for the gospel's sake and for his glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for such a wonderful week around your word that we have enjoyed and anticipate Uh, continued blessings today. We ask for your uh, great pouring out of your spirit upon our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray that you would uh, use this offering even now for your own purposes and that we would enjoy the blessing of participating in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you, Amber, Bethany, and Sophia. It's a lot of notes. needed six hands for that one. Fantastic. We're one through grace alone. The, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. How could we dishonor the ones that God has loved and is calling to join the church? May we extend the grace to them that has been extended to us because of the joy that is set before us let's stand and sing beneath the cross of Jesus.
2: Just as I am, though tossed about, with many conflicts, many doubts, you welcome heart, cleanse, and know, O Lamb of God, I come, I come to you.
0: Amen. There's more to come in our services later, but I think it would be right for us to honor those to whom honor is due. There's so many that have put in so many hours of preparation and practice uh, to help lead us in worship. If you've participated in the music during Bible Conference this week, would you stand please? Choirs, ensembles, soloists, Directors, if you've participated, would you stand? Let's say thank you to these folks. You truly have helped us rightly worship the Lord. Thank you for helping to lead us through truth that we could affirm to God. Uh, You have helped make this conference all that it has been for God's glory, I hope you students know how deeply, deeply proud of you we are. Uh, My heart swells when I see you using your gifts for the Lord, whether that's on the basketball court or the volleyball court or using your gifts when we do performances or in particular when we're together in worship. I was sitting on the platform while the trumpets were playing, and by the way, I was reminded as I was sitting here that John Freeman's dad, when he was single, was my high school principal and the house parent in the dorm in which I lived in high school. So it's just remarkable what God does and how lives connect here at Bob Jones. But I was sitting watching, not the trumpets, I was watching Dr. Bruce Cox's face. And uh, he was sitting there as a concerned teacher, and it went from that to a reveling, proud parent. And uh, I just want you to know how how much of a gift you are to us. When we get to see you use your gifts and see you grow and serve Christ. The Apostle Paul, I think, with swelling heart said, what is our glory or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? And uh, I I feel that joy, and that's part of why Bible Conference is such a joy, because we have a unique opportunity to see so much of our campus come together, and uh, I want to say thank you to that. We love you, and we're proud of you. That being said, I've introduced guest speakers, and this morning I have the great joy and privilege of introducing one who's not a guest, and I'm thankful for that, Dr. Billy Gocher is now one of our own, teaches here on campus, and uh, came and joined the Bob Jones University Seminary faculty from Trinity Baptist Church in Williston, Vermont, where he was the senior pastor. Before that, um, he uh, really was used of the Lord in many ministries in foundational ways. He was a senior pastor at Berea Baptist Church in Palm Harbor, Florida. Before that, at Grace Baptist Church of Waterford, Michigan, where the Lord had led him through a church revitalization uh, project. Um, God has used him to spearhead the founding of a Christian school, uh, to help ministries get financially stable, to revamp their facilities, to reorganize by philosophy, adult and children's education, creating philosophy of ministry documents, and God has truly gifted him with a heart for the church that prioritizes a right philosophy of ministry. In doing that, it's really out of a church setting that he has been gripped with a heart for missions. It wasn't just that he had a missionary heart, it was that he had a heart for the church that drove him to missions. So to build a healthy missions program within a church, the right thing to do was focus on the global dynamic of the Great Commission and as much as possible deploy people to go there. And so, he's led mission trips to Alaska and Utah and Mexico and Nicaragua and Puerto Rico and Brazil and Spain, and has seen then out of that multiple members of the churches that he has pastor answer God's call to go into full-time ministry. He's well-equipped as a doctor of ministries degree from our seminary here, as well as a master of divinity and a, a master of theology from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, And God then has used that education throughout His pastoral ministry around the globe. Uh, As ten opportunities came, He took every one of them to go and teach national pastors in China and then uh, in other countries, India and other places, uh, and this past year over on the continent of Africa. And so, He is a man who has lifted up His eyes and looked on the fields. The ones right here in front of us, as well as the foreign field. And I could say all of that and leave it there, and I probably should, but I want to go a step further. The man that's coming to preach to you this morning is a man that has a deeply passionate heart for you. And I know that because I have watched it in my own life. He has become one of my dearest brothers. He has seen me at my weakest. He has seen me at my most broken. He has prayed with me when I was proud. And he has wept with me when I was empty. And he is truly a man that has a heart for discipleship. And so as he comes to preach this morning, I'm excited to see how God allows him to open the Word and expose it to us today through a vessel that is a fit servant. I invite you to join me in welcoming to the pulpit Dr. Billy Kocher.
3: It is an honor to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. I'm thankful for the way you've paid attention. I can echo with Dr. Benson that we are uh, super proud of your attentiveness to all of the messages. And I love Bible Conference, and I love the opportunity to be under the Word of God. Myself, I pastored for 30 years and I used to go to conferences, I'd come back, and the first thing I would do is apologize to our church, because after gone and sit under preaching, I said, now it's probably going to be a little longer today. So I may not be foreshadowing what's about to happen, but I try not to, anyway. <laughs> but uh, I, as we look, as I look out on, on all of you, I can't help but just remember a little over 40 years ago in my own life. Mm. But I walked into a college campus. It was a Baptist college. And I didn't go because I was Baptist. I wasn't raised going to church. My mom tried that when I was, in, I think, a junior in high school and pretty much decided if dad wasn't going, I wasn't going. And then I walked into a Baptist college, not because I was Baptist, because it, it was, uh, I, I made the baseball program. Uh, they didn't have a profession of faith. So I walked in as an unsaved uh, young man to play baseball at a Baptist college. And then I found out, as I began my class scheduling, they had this thing called Required Chapel. They had a couple Bible classes, and I went to the Bible classes. I I cared enough about my academics that I paid attention, made good grades. I learned about Paul's travels and places he went. But I can just say that I went to chapel, and one one of the benefits you get with Required Chapel is you get under the sound of the Word of God regularly. That's a benefit, but it also has an inherent danger. The Inherent danger is you get used to God's Word being opened up to you, and some of you find your place and, you know, you get your comfortable spot. I, I pastored for 30 years, so I'm used to this even in church ministry. Some of you, when the time to open up to God's Word, it's the time to get comfortable. You know what I mean. Slouch back, get in your comfortable position. You may or may not stay awake. Some of you, this is the time where, and I didn't face this back 40 years ago, we didn't have cell phones. So I couldn't take a cell phone to chapel with me. I didn't have that built in distraction, advantage, disadvantage, however you want to see it. I didn't have that. Some of you, you know, this is the time to catch up on your sports team. It's time to catch up on social media. You just find your habit spot. I'm just saying to some of you right here that I was that guy. I was that guy. In fact, there was one class I flunked in college, chapel. It's hard to flunk chapel. You flunked chapel by just not meeting the attendance requirement. Now, I still to this day would argue that my records were correct and theirs was wrong. We had three required semesters of chapel. And in my third semester of required chapel, I apparently had one too many cuts and I got notified over Christmas break that I was required to go to chapel again. I argued with the dean of men, I argued with everybody I could argue with, and they told me, nope, you're going to go to chapel this semester. So I said, great. And I intended to do everything to ignore chapel, I possibly could, but I, can I say this to you? For some of you, I'm talking right to you. Because you know that you. The good shepherd always finds the lost sheep. I was one of those lost sheep. And it was in a Bible conference like this, my junior year of college, when the Lord got a hold of my heart. And I humbled my heart and in a a chapel just like this, I got on my knees and asked Christ to save me. I had no idea that one day I'd be standing before a group of college students and have the privilege of opening God's word. I just knew that day that I was a lost sinner and I didn't wanna stay in my sin anymore. And God graciously saved me. That day the speaker, maybe this was it, I connected, he played football, I played football, he played offensive line, he was a center, he played at North Texas State. He actually played and this you know for some for most of you this is too old a to reference, for a few of you get it. But he actually played against mean Joe Green, which was one of the star defensive linemen of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I hate to say that, but I grew up in Texas. You know, you can't be a Steeler fan in Texas, sorry. But uh anyway, I it really so the Lord used that, and so may the Lord use one of these services to connect to your heart. Some of you know that you need to be saved, and we pray that this, the Lord of the harvest who's seeking those lost sheep, might find you even today. Every culture faces its moment. As we look out and think of the moments in which you're facing, you're going to face various forms of opposition to the gospel advance, and one of my burdens today is, is, to, is not really to suggest that... that it, Well, it's two things. One, it isn't really new, but it is new in maybe some of the velocity we see in the cultural moment that you're facing. It is new in maybe some of the angles that it's taking, but we certainly are in a cultural moment where probably, at least in my lifetime, this is one of the greatest pressures on the church to go silent. And when I say silent, the church, just remember the church is not buildings and programs, it's people. And for each of you here that are in Christ, you're a part of Christ's bride, you're a part of the church, and this culture wants you to be silent. It will cancel you, it will push you, it will bully you, it wants you to look past all more. I mean, they brilliantly decided that you and I are trying to conserve something old that needs to be irrelevant. They're the progressives and they're making progress. Who doesn't want to make progress, right? Right? They bombard you with messaging nonstop to try and make sin look normal, to push down and push up your tolerance, and then if you dare to stand, to make examples of those who would stand. I pastored in Vermont, and just this year, one of the small Christian schools there in Vermont was playing girls' basketball, and they determined that they would forfeit a game against a public school who was fielding a young man on the girls' team. The state of Vermont made an example of them, went after them, and has now banned them from every activity in which would be sponsored by the state in educational format, in academic format, uh, whether it's also scholarships that could go, that even families could use to go to their school, all of that has been done. They received no trial, no verdict, just condemnation by the state. There was a, in 2021, an Air Force graduate, Lieutenant Colonel of the Ufor, U.S. Air uh, Space Forces, Matt Lohmeyer, was dismissed from the military. What was his crime? He dared to speak up and actually document how all the DEI training that was being forced on the military services was actually destroying the morale of the military and creating great seeds of doubt about the nation in which they'd been called to serve. He was dismissed for documenting it and sending it on to his general. That general received his fourth star. And then went on to request $150 more million dollars for that training for the U.S. military. It's a unique day. There are unique challenges. In 2022, Eric Metaxas released his book, A Letter to the American Church, And he said that if we're in a cultural moment, and the comparison he made, and whether he's right or wrong, we'll see, but part of the comparison he makes is that the cultural moment for you and for us as a church and as as believers, we're facing is similar to the cultural moment faced by the church in Germany when Hitler came to rise. He documented some (coughs) 18,000 churches in Germany And after Hitler's second year of reign, there were 3,000 churches that were willing to stand against the doctrines of Nazism, become systematically persecuted, even give their life for the cause of Christ. 3,000 celebrated the progress. They joined, celebrated what was happening, but 12,000 were silent. And the question for us is in our cultural moment, Will we be silent? We're turning to the book of Revelation, last book in our Bible. What I'd like, what I propose to you, and really what I'd like to show you from the Scripture is that the opposition from educated unbelief and the opposition from religious unbelief is not really new. That the early church was born in that kind of environment. They faced it. And in the last series of letters that the Lord inspired and sent to His churches, He gives us some instructions on how to respond. And how we can be encouraged in the midst of the difficulty we face. In Revelation 1.1, it said, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. And so we have this, this revelation, the word term just means to uncover, to lay bare. There's the disclosure of truth that's being given through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is, could be taken as the subject of this revelation, which certainly is true. But I think it's better understood as he is the one who is the revealer. Throughout revelation, he's the one revealing There'll be this grand vision of Christ in chapter 1. It'll be connected to all of the letters in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then we go on this grand tour of heaven and the future. And all of this laid out to the Apostle John, who is, for his faith, on the Isle of Patmos. And so persecution is rising. The cost is increasing. The temptation to grow silent is there Compromise has been made. Some of the churches face condemnation. Uh, in these letters, there's condemnation, there's commendation. God commends them for their faithfulness. He will condemn them for some of the compromise. There's only two churches in here that don't have any statement of condemnation. And we're going to look at one of those today the Church of Philadelphia. Part of the grand purpose is to encourage the church to be faithful. To be faithful to Jesus as it faces determined opposition. We're not simply called to endure difficulty. We're called to labor in our king's harvest field with an anticipation of the fruit that he will give and the pleasure that we will know forevermore in his presence. A text that I dearly love in 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks about the conversion of the Thessalonicans. He says, for they themselves show us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivers us from the wrath to come. And in this grand text, part of what I want you to see is that there's an anticipation of Jesus' return that is a part of faith. For those who actually come to Christ in saving faith, you're called out of the sin. So we turn to God from darkness. As a junior in college, I got on my knees. And I didn't know what it all would mean for my life. But I knew this. I needed Jesus Christ to save me. And then I began to follow him. And he changed my life and opened doors I never even thought were possible or were ever going to be in front of me. But I was willing to serve. And the other thing that is always in, especially when you face opposition and difficulty, is there's always hope for the believer. And that hope isn't I just hope it all works out. It is the confident assurance of a promise, and God promises who cannot lie, and he is coming again. Amen? Revelation is all about it. Jesus is coming. He's coming and he's going to deliver his people. And the end of the story ends within his presence. No more tears, no more sorrows. All the things that bring heartache will be over. That's coming. And so he, Paul is telling us in in 1 Thessalonians, listen, the nature of faith is a turning to God. Independent, humble trust that follows him in service and looks forward to his return. So we have much to look forward to no matter the opposition we face. That theme runs throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, some four times in Revelation we just hear, we get this refrain from the Lord Jesus. Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. What a great encouragement as we face the difficulties what I'd like to do is show the need for encouragement for the church in Philadelphia and just connect how we likewise need the encouragement. Before we do, one of the things I want to ask, and no need to put up your hands because I kind of think I know the answer to this question, but just in case, just to, if you're the rare exception, you can t- come and talk to me afterwards. I have yet to meet anybody who got angry with somebody who actually sought to encourage them. Like, you know, when you come to church and somebody comes up and tries to be encouraging, I'd be yet to tell that guy, get lost. What are you trying to do? Why do you want to encourage me? I don't want to be encouraged. Now, I know some people can have a pity party, and right there you don't want to hear it. But overall, we really do appreciate encouragement. This text is about encouraging us in the work, in the midst of hostile environment, in the midst of the difficulties and the temptation to grow silent, and the encouragement is to speak. Speak the truth you've been entrusted to. Take the gospel as God has given it to you, to others, with anticipation of the fruit that he will give. The second reality is living in a fallen world means that it's filled with sources of disappointment. The other thing you know every time you show up in the house of God or in the chapel to worship the Lord is there's people sitting there that need to be encouraged. I wonder how many of you actually think before you come in, who can I encourage today? I mean, we're in our selfishness all come in and say, well, I wish somebody would encourage me. And I just challenge you that if you actually make it a part of your purpose to go in and be an encouragement to others, God will encourage your heart. God will encourage your heart. The need for, the, for, for encouragement there in the church of Philadelphia came from several things. If you look in Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at verse 7 to 9. And you see, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write these things, says, He that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, and he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and he that shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept The word of my power and have not despised my name. Behold, I'll make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews but are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them come and worship before thee and to know that I have loved thee. And there are several things about the just historic realities about this city. We actually know what the name Philadelphia means, the city of brotherly love. It actually is rooted in these two kings. Uh, pergaminian kings that were just loyal to each other that's how the city got its name it went through a diverse history but it was a prominent city in a prominent location that even after an earthquake destroyed it it was rebuilt by emperor tiberius and it became really little athens it was almost a missional point for the advancement of hellenism throughout asia so that Hellenistic culture and mindset and all the pagan worship that went with it and the, the, the temples built to the pagan gods and all of that came in, but then part of then with the emperor's investment came, uh, the cult of emperor worship became a part of the city. It was prominent. It was a trade city. It was wealthy. And here was this church of little strength, of little influence. A church that in many ways to the city was insignificant. And it was laboring in this kind of culture, a culture that was enlightened, a culture that was prosperous, a culture maybe not so different from ours than we might have thought. A church that didn't, a culture that largely did not see its need. And this church is commended by the Lord as a faithful church. Do not deny his name, who was actually entrusted with the gospel and saw the gospel begin to bring conversions, but now under the pressure is beginning to, to pull back in a sense of tempted to be silent in the wake of all of the opposition. Add to it not only the educated unbelief of a city and a culture, but add to it then religious opposition coming from the Jews who say they're Jews, but they've actually believed the lie of Satan and rejected Jesus and want nothing more than the destruction of the church. This is the context in which the church was laboring. In the midst of that kind of context where the church is tempted or where believers are tempted to grow silent, what is the answer? Where do we turn? And that's where this letter comes in and gives us direction. And so we see this direction coming from the Lord. We look to Christ. They need to get their eyes off of the opposition. Stop seeing the culture that has gone to its progressive foolishness and advocating sin in every quarter and celebrating and punishing nonconformity. And you live in that kind of culture and labor in that kind of culture. But stop letting the culture be the one that leads what you do. How you think. You actually need to turn your eyes back to the one you're following, assuming you're following him. And remember who he is. And when we begin to turn our eyes back to Christ, then everything else, as Dr. Benson has so adequately illustrated for us all semester, it's an issue of your perspective. And when all you see is the opposition then you begin to fear and we begin to grow silent when we've been called to speak and when we see Jesus we're reminded of who he is and what he has done then we know that we're actually in the process of being made a little bit more like him isn't that amazing And so here's this encouragement, look to the one who is actually your source of encouragement. And while we should encourage one another and we need one another and God's made us to need the community of faith and he's made us to need church to come together with believers and be be in a place where we are encouraged and equipped and commissioned but we are all commissioned to go and to speak. Silence is not an option for an ambassador. And if you're in Christ and you've been appointed to a mission of making Christ known, and as we were reminded, it's a mission that's far from over. And so they needed to see and be reminded again of that Jesus is the one who is holy. The one set apart from all of his creation, that we're not like him, that he is above time. He created time. He's greater than anything we've ever imagined. He is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. But I love this phrase I dwell in a high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. I love the language of God's purpose to dwell find it all the way through the scripture that God walked with Adam and Eve in a garden. He dwelled with them and sin broke that fellowship and God is in the process through redemption to bring a restoration in which he will be our God and we will be his people and he will dwell with us. If you're in Christ, God has come to dwell with you through the person of the Spirit of God indwelling you and so Christ, the Spirit of Christ. And Christ in you is your hope, your confidence of glory. He dwells with us, and He dwells with those who are of a contrite and humble spirit. And I can't can't not read this text and ask you if that actually is an accurate, ad- ad- an accurate. There's the word description of you. I was a proud, arrogant young man. Thought I was gonna be God's gift to either baseball or finance or in between something. But that day of the junior year of of college, and God had done many things to begin to just chip away at that arrogant self-confidence and bring me to the end of me. And then he filled me with Christ. Is that you? And if it's not, can I just encourage you to stop running? Stop running. You're not as good as you think you are. And without Christ, you'll accomplish nothing except the destruction of your life. God's holiness is not just his apartness from his creation. It actually is God's apartness from, we often would just say that God is apart from all that is sinful. It's his moral purity. But I'd like to suggest to you that God was holy before there was ever moral impurity in his world. That God's holiness is a richer thing than just being separated from sin. God's holiness gets into the fact that he has always been fully devoted to that which is right, that which is good, that which is beautiful, that which is like himself. He created a world filled with glorious things that we stand back in awe of, but nothing as glorious as him. We're called to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We're to come to the word of God and behold the Holy One. And then we're called to actually pursue after. We're to be holy as he is holy. We're to love what he loves and find the joy and all that actually reflects him. And when we revel in the holiness of God, when we, are, we really have our eyes, as Isaiah experienced, that moment of seeing the clarity of the holiness of God, it humbles us under our lack of holiness. But it also, for those that are in Christ, it fuels your passion. Because Jesus is at work in your life, He's at work to make you more like Himself. Well, I lived in Florida for 11 years, and in Florida we were really close to the ocean. And My youth pastor at the time was a big fisherman, so I grew up fishing, so we used to go out and fish all the time, and I quickly learned I do not like to fish. I don't, but I love to catch. And I did learn in the ocean that one of the things, the benefits of, 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 you know, now my dad used to take us fishing. We used to go do that thing, you know, where you sat on the riverbank, you threw it out there, and you waited for hours for something to finally make the pole go move, and that was a good time. I I just didn't really think that was all that fun. I liked being with my dad. I enjoyed going, and I'd go do other things, and I'd skip rocks across while he was trying to fish, and he would say, stop, and, you know, but... uh, Uh, Then I learned fishing in the ocean and found that, you know, you can always catch something. You might not want what you caught, because it can pick you, stick you, prick you, and uh, all kinds of things. But you know what I learned? I really enjoyed learning how to be basically tactical and catch fish. And I like taking people out to experience it. My kids, on the other hand, thought, Dad, you just make this too much work. Probably did. (laughs) But I like catching So I like the analogies in Scripture that talk about going fishing. But I love this reality as Jesus was walking in Matthew 4, calling disciples to him, and he calls them from their nets, and and he tells them this simple statement, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In Luke 5, they actually had gone back to their nets again. I mean, so the disciples struggled in following Christ. And they go back to fishing again. They were discouraged. The opposition, things weren't going like they thought. And they went back to their nets. And Jesus brings the crowd out to them. And then he tells them, let's set out. And tells them to drop their nets. And this amazing catch. And and then Peter is like astonished. He falls down. And we have this Isaiah moment, right? Peter says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He was astonished and so were James and John the sons of Zebedee and then Jesus said to Simon fear not from henceforth thou shalt catch men did you get it Jesus is making you not just fishers of men he's promised you're actually going to catch some isn't that amazing I'm going to make you You shall catch men. And then they brought their ships to the land. They forsook all and followed him. Young people, as you continue to grow in your love for Christ, you live in a culture filled with distraction. That's really not that new, except for you carry it with you at all times. You live in a culture filled with opposition. Perhaps right now this cultural moment is new in the sense of in American culture, the heightened cancel culture is a little new. And then we live in that rugged, you know, we still live in that I want my, you know, my private space and what I do. And we live in the day where everybody wants their personal truth and you can't tell me what to believe. And can I just say don't believe the lies? The God of truth is spoken because that's the very next point. He's not only holy and altogether majestic in glory. And when you're devoted to holiness, by the way, you don't have time for sin, amen? When you're devoted to holiness, you don't have time for sin. When you find Jesus altogether lovely, you will not find sin lovely. And then you know that this is a reality, that in all the noise, and I I don't know about you, but I, I personally don't like being lied to. I don't like being scammed. I pastored in Florida for 11 years. I can tell you of story after story of people that are vulnerable, that are scammed by scammers, will come along to people that are lonely and promise to be their friend and steal everything they have. I'll tell you some really sad stories. People lost everything to scammers. Can I tell you that Jesus is telling you the truth? When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's actually telling you the truth. That when he says that apart from me, you can do nothing, that you in your self-determination and self-confidence go out and you're going to plow your own way, you're going to make your way, you're going to be the uh, the captain of your own ship, whatever analogy you want to use. But here's the reality. You're in charge of nothing, not even your own heart. Your heart is either being mastered by the lie of Satan or by the truth of God. You're not deciding truth for yourself. Don't believe that lie. Jesus is the truth teller. Satan is the liar. And any time, and it doesn't matter how religious you are, any time you stop believing Jesus is telling you the truth, you join Satan. The Church of Philadelphia had one hope: that their hope rested in the Messiah who had called them to be disciple-makers of all nations in the midst of opposition, and they were called into that harvest field filled with unbelief. But they had promises. They had promises that they had been sent into the world, and not only that, but there are people, Jesus says, neither I pray for these alone, but for them which shall believe on me through their word. Remember, Jesus told Peter, you, you, You're going to catch men. Jesus calls on us to pray, to pray, as we've been reminded throughout this, this conference, to lift our eyes, look on the field, that the Lord of the harvest is sending out laborers, and we've actually been commissioned to go, and so we're praying for each other. I mean, in many ways, we're simply praying. Would we just trust and obey? Will we take the gospel? Will we go? Will we believe that the Lord has fruit and that he will actually bear fruit and that we can take the gospel to our neighbor? You know, as we lift up our eyes, and we need to, we need to lift up our eyes to the harvest field all around the world, and as I've had opportunity to be in many parts of the world and many of the places where there's large unreached people groups and be with pastors and hear their heart and pray with them and weep with them and be a part of helping equip them to take the gospel into their culture. But I'm always reminded of this truth that the harvest field isn't just out there. As you lift up your eyes, don't forget to look right next door. Right in maybe your own room or right across the hall and in this community that the harvest field out there, if you're going to go change this world and and impact it for Christ and reach these unreached people groups, then it starts right here. It starts right now. You're not going to be a great witness over there because you showed up at a foreign field and said, I've got a burden for this field. Now I'm going to be a great witness if you're not right here. Folks, part of the lie that we believe in this culture So we're afraid to talk to the guy across the hall or the girl that we know that's struggling spiritually or perhaps there's nobody in this room that knows which students actually need Christ more than you. No one. You know. My question is, do you even pray for their salvation? Do you pray for the opportunity to talk to them? We have these great texts on prayer. One of the things we know about prayer is we were gloriously reminded this week is oftentimes we simply don't have because we don't ask. But you do know we have this promise that we pray according to the will of God we'll have as we ask. It is God's will for you and I to pray for open doors. It's God's will not only for us to pray for open doors but actually for the boldness to speak. Any of you like boldness? I mean, I used to, I mean, I knew, I mean, I was called in pastoral ministry. I used to, you know, how many of you like, when you go on the plane and, you know, you're just not sure who's going to sit next to you. I mean, some of us, you know, you, you're praying that they have their headsets on. They don't want, they clearly communicate. They want to talk because then you're like off the hook. I don't have to say anything. Uh, I, I learned, and it took me a while because believe it or not, I'm really kind of introverted. I mean, most people don't believe that anymore, but um, but I'd get on the plane, and, and I, I just learned to look at it totally different. Uh, so some of you remember the days when your parents took you because it's all they could afford, to McDonald's, and you got a Happy Meal? And you look forward to finding out what that prize was. So I don't look as people as Happy Meals. That's kind of stupid, but anyway. I just say, you know what? I never know what prize is coming. Just don't. It's like when you go on door, I mean door-to-door visitation, used to terrify me. I'm like, ha-ha, I am like ha i do not know if I want to knock on this door. And then I just finally realized, you know, I, I used to have, they had this thing called Cracker Jacks back in the day, you know, get a game. There was always a toy in it. I just said, you know, it's like opening up a Cracker Jacks box. You just don't know what's inside. So it's a surprise. And if you like, I mean, most of us like presents, right? You open the present, you're not sure what's inside. So I just look at the people on the airplane. There's a present coming. I get to talk to somebody. And maybe God's gonna unopen that present. I just flew down for my mom's birthday and flew back and God in his grace put put a guy that wanted to talk. And it was just an amazing opportunity to get to hear from him and then share what God has done in my life. Do you pray for regular opportunities to share your testimony? Are you prepared? Lift up your eyes harvest is all around. It actually begins right here, right now. And then it's all over the world. So we lift up our eyes and we look to the harvest field, we're reminded, we're encouraged by the fact that Jesus is not only holy, he's not only the truth, he's actually sovereign, he's Lord. He holds the keys, he's the, he has the key of David, he opens, no man shuts, he shuts, no one opens, he's absolute sovereign, he's pulling from language, he's used this language of key in chapter 1, it draws actually back to Isaiah 22, and it's pulling this language of authority and responsibility together, and Jesus is the one with absolute authority over the coming kingdom of God. It ties together with that declaration, he's the way, the truth, no man comes to the Father but by me. So he's telling us this true declaration, he only has the key, he only can grant entrance into the kingdom of God, but with that is a profound warning that when he shuts the door, no one will open it. Friend, if you stay in your lost condition, stay running from Jesus, the day may come when that door slams closed, and you will not open it. So we look at the promises of the one who is true, the one who is sovereign, the one who is holy. He encourages his faithful church with this amazing promise. He said, "I know thy works." Behold, I've set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength thou hast kept my word and has not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, but they are not and do lie. I will make them come and worship before thy feet and know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patient, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them and dwell, that dwell upon the earth. So that first promise, this first encouraging promise that the Lord gives is that he's going to open doors and hearts. In the midst of the difficulty the church of Philadelphia faced, they were a little church, little in size, little in strength. Aren't you glad that God is never constrained by the size of, his, of the church? Or the people group God's not constrained he does not have to have many we think somehow it's going to be you know this going to be the next superstar that gets saved he has a platform or he wins the MVP and he shares his testimony of Christ and that's going to win the world to Christ it's not it's just not we think the church the mega church will be the solution or the grand church and it's not God's plan has always been the gospel advanced through people who receive the gospel The gospel came to you on the way to somebody else. Who is the somebody else you're sharing the gospel with? And if you're not regularly sharing the gospel with somebody else, who are you praying for the opportunity? Are you praying for doors to be opened? Do you actually believe God opens doors? Here's the promise to the church that is faithful, the church that doesn't sell out the truth for the world's accommodation, who will not grow silent in the face of opposition. I will open a door that no man can shut. We're still here, folks. There's doors being opened. Amen? If there's not doors going to continue to be open, Jesus needs to take us to heaven because there's no more work to be done. There's plenty of work to be done. There's doors being opened and the amazing thing. And, and I, I, I love the fact that, you know, right from the first message, you guys began creating creative memes. I mean, your creativity is off the charts, all right? So there's the bubble one that's still going around and Dr. Benson will never live down bubbling. But your creativity, your ability, your passion... Focus it on what's actually worth spending your life for. Jesus is worth spending your life for. The gospel is worthy of spending your life for. And there's the promise of God that there's other sheep that are gonna come. And if you'll be faithful, he will open doors. And here's the good news. No one can shut it. I didn't go to a Baptist college planning to become a Baptist or get saved. I didn't go for that reason. God saved this wretched sinner in that college and then later called me to the work of the ministry. And for some of you, you're not called to vocational ministry in the sense of maybe pastorally. But can I just say to all of you, if you're a believer, you're called to full-time ministry. Nobody gets an out on that you shouldn't want it i mean you just shouldn't want it god saved you he's done a glorious work of redemption and rescued you from the sin that was going to destroy you and gives you an opportunity to take this good news i was just reading this morning in second kings second kings chapter 7 the lepers are outside the gate seven-year famine going on they have this brilliant plan we stay out here, we're gonna die. We go in the city, they don't have any food either, we're gonna die. We're just gonna go to the, Samaritan, the, the Syrian army and we're gonna see if, you know, if they let us in and feed us some food, we might live for a little while longer or they'll just kill us, the worst thing's gonna happen is we're gonna die. They go out to the Syrian army tents and, and no one's there. They sit down in the first tent and they start eating everything they can find. They take the gold, they go back and hide it. They go back out and they run back out there and they find some more and they start taking it and then one of them gets a conscience. And his conscience pricks him and he said, you know what, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. And they run back to the city and say, folks, there's food, there's good news. And would to God that he would strike our hearts that we're not doing right. We have the good news, we come together and celebrate it all the time here in this campus and in the churches you attend, but we don't take it anywhere. We're just not doing right. It's a day of good news, Jesus saved you, that's good news, right? You're still convinced of that, right? Jesus commends this faithful church. They're marked by loving obedience and loyalty. The little strength is just reminding them that how they view themselves, which is why he had to point to himself, this really isn't about you, it's about me, not me, Jesus. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Now go and take the message in the midst of that hostility and opposition. And look what he says, that synagogue of Satan, you talk about unexpected mission field, that synagogue of Satan, maybe it's those people in Yemen in the middle of turmoil and warfare and even terrorist activity committed to Islam, you think unlikely harvest field, synagogue of Satan? It's going to come. They're going to worship before your feet. And they're going to know that I love you. They're going to know. I often used to tell our church, and my bride of 38 years is 39. Excuse me, honey. We just rolled 39. 39 years of marriage. And often would tell the church, look, if you say you love your pastor, you better love my wife. If you don't love my wife, don't tell me you love me. And I just come back to you and say, you say you love Jesus. You don't have a lot of time for the church, though. I don't think Jesus believes you. I I just don't think he believes that. If you won't love his bride, if you won't engage in ministering local church, and why are you telling yourself you love Jesus? He reminds that church who's being pressured to be silent that he's the Lord of the harvest and he is mighty to save. So will we grow silent, remain silent, and the threats and the opposition of our culture? Will the fear of man crush? our trust in the power of God to save? Will we lose our voice? Have we lost our voice? May we cry out to the Lord of the harvest. Say, open us a door. Do it again. Do it again. Open a door. Grant us boldness. Give us fruit. As we labor together in your harvest field because we actually know that you are mighty to save. And we want the world to know that we love Jesus because he first loved us. And he promises protection and we'll not go into all the details there. But here's the synagogue with Satan that's going to come. He promises to protect his people from coming judgment. There's going to be an hour of trial where the unsaved world is going to be exposed for their unsaved condition. They're spiritually bankrupt. They're spiritually dead. It's all going to be exposed and God's going to bring final judgment that's going to come. And the world of rebellion and unbelief will be brought to an end. But his people will be brought gloriously into his presence, and that's why he ends the book with that reminder that he comes quickly. And the last verse I'd like to just share as we close. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, because, you know, the Corinthian church was just one of those churches that every local church models itself to be after, right? It's a church ripe with division, ripe with animosity. They're fighting against the apostle. And Paul writes this, and this has always been a verse that has just resonated in my heart. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Now just hear the end of that verse. As you love your roommate who needs Christ, and you begin to talk about that, or your Hallmate, or the one across the hall or your neighbor you begin to love them they may actually love you less because you tell them the truth that's actually should not be surprising but it must not cause us to be silent the gospel goes by word and we share the truth and why do we do it because we spend you know, I, I enjoy the game of golf and I enjoy, you know, when you hit the bad one and occasionally you get to take the mulligan, it's not real in life. You don't get mulligans. In golf you can pretend. In fact, I've only got one hole in one in my life, and it came on a mulligan, so it really didn't count. So there you go. God in his humor said, no, that ain't gonna count. So, But here's the question, you got one lifetime, and you're spending it right now. Will you spend it on what matters? For those of you heading to the corporate world, just know this, that your character and the fact that you'll be honest and hardworking means you're going to make really good employees. And the corporate world's going to eat you up, it's going to love it. I worked in that world for four and a half years, I was a computer programmer, fast track to go on to account manager had all the dollar signs laid out in front of me what I could have what I could have in that world I watched and looked around at those who were my bosses my bosses bosses and I looked at the train wreck of their life of their relationships with their family and with all so many things and I saw what the corporate life did it consumed them It rewarded them, gave them trips. I got given trips and bonuses and all this stuff was sucking me right down into this corporate world that was gonna magically take all my time and give me a little bit of financial reward. And at some point you're blinded and you think that's worth it until Jesus rips the scales off. Don't fall in that trap. Your life should not be spent for corporate accounts. Your life needs to be spent for what matters. Paul said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for the souls of men. Silence is not an option for ambassadors of Christ. You are going to spend this life. Will you spend it on what's worthwhile? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. I thank you for the students. I thank you for attentiveness. Thank you for the heart that they have for you, for the gospel, for the advance. I thank you for these amazing ministries over the last three years of my experience here. We've been able to invest in being led by graduates and doing incredible things with the gospel all over the world. Lord, inspire the hearts of these students for what you have for them. Open doors for them and help them to spend what you've given them well. Father, there are some who need to stop running. And they need to come to Christ. Humble themselves and today know the joy of salvation. or they know who they are. You know who they are. Father, I pray that you bring them to repentance and faith. That the good shepherd would find some lost sheep right here. And you would burden students who know you for their unsafe friends that are right here. And they will pray and labor and go to their friends, sharing the love of Christ that others might be rescued. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>